So the reading is uh, Mark, as we're aware. Um, chapter three, there we go. Chapter three, seven to nineteen. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him for he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you, especially if you're here online. Uh, Shirley, if you're in your hospital bed, uh, it's great to have you with us. That's on now. Go on. Um, and especially if you're here visiting for the first time, we love to get into the Bible and hear what God's got to say uh, and let him set the agenda. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to get into his word and see what he's got to say to us today to show us what we were just singing, how great Jesus is. That's what I'm hoping we'll see this morning. Shall I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would help me as I seek to unpack your words. Lord, that whatever I um, say, Lord, that does not bring you glory would fall to the ground and wither. And Lord, whatever... Uh, in here does bring you glory. I pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would help that to flourish in our hearts, that we would see just how thrilling and wonderful you are. And, Lord, that we would continue our lives longing to glorify you in everything, even, Lord, where it just seems uh, ridiculous and absurd what you ask us to do, that we would trust you as our loving Lord and Saviour. Amen. 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 So I, I may have shared this with you before, but my mum once went to stay with some friends in London, two uh, the same age as her, just her and them. She's known them for a long time. They, they live in a, in a very nice, polite suburban setting. Uh, she's been friends with them for years, and she's been trying to tell them about Jesus for years and for years. Uh, but um, she was uh, on the phone call to me afterwards, uh, really worried about what happened. Basically, over the course of dinner, her two hosts uh, tore into her for what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. It was so bad that her host had to get up and leave the house. So great was the, um, uh, I suppose, the the anger or the rage. Um, And (laughs) 
uh, in the end, she, I think she ended up not staying there, but coming. No, I think she did stay there. She did stay there, but she came and stayed with me the next day. She's longing for them to know how brilliant Jesus is, to be part of God's people. But so often, it seems, doesn't it, that it's just for the way of the, for those who are not yet following Jesus, it just seems too much. Like, how will they ever? understand how great Jesus is. Maybe that's you here today. You're thinking, I'm not sure I can ever see how this Jesus could be brilliant. We're longing for people to know Jesus. We're longing for God's people to grow. I hope that's you. Uh, but the, the worry is, is that just the pressure of our culture and those who lead it, it's just too much. Uh, we, just, we can't reach them with the Bible that we've got, with the gospel that we've got, with the Jesus that we've got. And so the temptation is to either grow less affectionate for Jesus or maybe just not to stick our neck out. Or if we do stick our neck out, maybe the overwhelming temptation is, is just to change the words of God and the gospel a bit so it's more palatable. There's less of a hill to climb for people. It's not so discordant. And I can tell you, as a vicar, I look around at the various ministries around me, the various progressive ministries, where the gospel has been changed. They have such huge followings, sometimes in their thousands. They speak all over the world. It seems to be working over there. And this as a minister, I think, well, shouldn't we just change a bit. Have you ever felt that? Maybe in your classroom as you've listened to what actually the teacher up front or your fellow classmates think about Christians on a certain issue. Or maybe you're out with a friend who forcefully shuts you down on God as something just at odds with modern society in a slight kind of disbelief that you can believe such nonsense. Maybe you're just about I'm just going to survive at work. I fly under the radar in my job about, you know, about being a Christian because I'm not sure I'll keep my job, let alone see anyone uh, come to know Jesus and how brilliant he is. Or maybe you're at home and you find yourself explaining gospel living to yourself and then to those you love in a way that doesn't quite sit with God's word. Because otherwise the gap just seems too big for them to cross. And you long for them to cross that gap, to be part of God's people, Jesus' people. The payoff of this passage is confidence. Confidence that Jesus is the Son of God, mighty to call out of a hostile culture and a hostile leadership the people of God, to stick with him, and to go out using his method of preaching and fighting a spiritual battle against evil. That's its confidence, where we feel a lack of confidence in him, because we see he's the Son of God. Let's see what God's got to say. Jesus has grown the greatest movement ever, and that displays that he is the Son of God for us. That's what we see here. Verse 7, here we go. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to, a, to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed him. So verse 7, he withdrew. What's he withdrawing from? Well, the context is he's just been in the synagogue, if you look in the verses above. 
And there's been distress by Jesus at the stubborn hearts of the leaders of God's people. Verse 5 of chapter 3, he looked around at those leaders in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, their lack of love for people. There's been a conflict with the culture of the day and that leadership. And what the conflict is expressed in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So the religious leaders have teamed up with the occupying forces and they're now both plotting. How can we stop this Jesus movement? We need to kill Jesus and we're going to stop it in his tracks. That is the ultimate clash, isn't it, with, with the culture and the leadership around them. Uh, now, some leaders in this situation might be intimidated, tempted to compromise, maybe find a middle way. But Jesus just withdraws. Having revealed not only the failure of that leadership and culture of the day and its blatant hostility to Jesus and Jesus' people, he withdraws. And what do we discover? When he's, withdra when we, when he's withdrawn, with, when he's withdrawn, have I got that? When he's withdrawn, what do we discover? It's a need for leadership and for a culture that is different. In verse 7, look what comes with him. Uh, to the lake, a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Jerus Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. And because of this crowd, he told his disciples to have a little boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Uh, and look, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And they're falling over each other as that happens. The, the mob that follows Jesus is emphasised here and the words that are used in the Greek. It's like a sort of a massive crowd, a multitude. And they come from all over. Did you see that? Israel, Judea. They come from all over Israel, Judea, Idumea. And there are even non-Jews as well, Tyre and Sidon. It's the whole lot. And the desperation is palpable, isn't it? You've got to have a boat. So you're not crushed by these people trying to come up to you. They're desperate. They're filled with disease and sickness, feeling the effects of sin and the spiritually oppressed there at the bottom. Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. There are people here with, that are utterly in bondage to sin and to Satan, aren't they? And with the, there's no one to lead them here. So they're all coming to Jesus in a desperate state. With the failure of that leadership and culture that we've just seen of the day, who will lead these people? And the answer is verse 11. We're reminded that the person who is here to lead them is the Son of God. The demonic encounter is not about casting out demons. We don't even hear about the individuals who've been set free. It's about identifying who Jesus is. They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And verse 12 reminds us that as readers, that's privileged knowledge for us. The others there, they're not seeing that. But for us, Mark gives us that knowledge so that we can judge what comes properly. We can see how people respond to him properly. Here is the Son of God. And what does the Son of God do about this needy people lacking leadership? He presses the reset button on God's people by appointing new leaders. Verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountain, uh, mountainside 
and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and they might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Does that little setup sound familiar? God up a mountain calling people to be with him. Twelve. Can't do twelve. Twelve. This is deliberately calling to mind Moses and the twelve tribes of Judah and God calling them up the mountain and giving Moses the Ten Commandments and creating a new people of God. And interestingly, the word for appointed here is just made. He made them the twelve. He made them. It's repeated twice. And that's the same word back in Genesis when you're creating the whole world. It's, it's a, this is the start of a new creation, of a new part of God's people. That's what we're witnessing. Here are 12 new leaders to lead God's people. At this time, there are only three and a half tribes of Israel left. And suddenly Jesus is on a hill saying, here's 12 leaders who are going to go out. Do you see how he's resetting? Here is the Jesus movement starting for the first time. And what is Jesus' leadership plan to forge a new people who will strive against this culture that want to kill him? And the leadership that want to do away with this movement. What's his plan for that? Have a look at verse 14. He appoints the twelve that they might do two things. Number one, what does it say? That they might be with him. And that he might send them out. And sending out has two purposes. To preach, which is the same word as chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And also to have his authority, the same authority Jesus does, to drive out demons. Now with the demonic, there are two dangers to avoid. Number one, you see demons everywhere. Number two, you think they don't exist. What's the point here? The point here is that the apostles have been given not their own authority, but Jesus' authority to fight the devil and evil and sin and all the stuff that goes with it. Now, I put it to you that as a plan in front of Dragon's Den, that is a terrible plan. That is not what we would choose if you were a businessman or you were in the HR department looking at this recruitment and what they're told to do, there is no chance of resisting this hostile leadership that want to kill off Jesus and stop this movement. You just chose your leadership out of a desperate crowd of sick people. You didn't go to Harvard Business School. You went to Stoke Mandeville A&E. Crazy man. You call out the weak and out of the weak and sick crowd. And some of them are moral failures, as we've already seen. The tax collectors, that's, that's, that's Matthew. And they're totally without the training of the Pharisees. They're without the, the godliness, for that matter, and the goodness. We actually, if you read these names, Simon, James, uh, who else we got? Son of Zebedee, uh, John, uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James... I don't even know what any of them did. No one does. Isn't that odd? That the 12 first leaders, we hardly know anything about them. 
It's because they were nothing special. You've deliberately chose people who, in fact, look at the last line. It says, uh, he chose Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So, as an HR manager, what you've done there is you've deliberately chosen someone who is on the other team's side and wants to betray you and kill you. How is that going to start restart God's people? How is that going to overcome the Pharisees and the Herodians and the cultural of the day? And yet, here we are. What do you think the Roman Christians might be thinking as they read this? As they're in Rome, one of a handful of Christians living under one of the most powerful empires of the world, militarily, culturally, philosophically, and even theology, theologically. Their gods were everywhere. The Roman way of life is overwhelming in every way. And the persecution that those Roman Christians are experiencing makes that totally clear that their culture hates Christians, and so does its leaders, and they would crush them wherever they can. And they're starting to think, am I actually on the wrong team? It feels so fragile, painful, and difficult. Surely this Jesus movement can't succeed. Maybe we need to change our tactics, or pick up a sword, or, or just, stop, just stop preaching. Maybe the more pragmatic are thinking, in order to survive and thrive in this culture, we could just abandon the teaching that Jesus is God, uh, or maybe this weird teaching that they've got on sexual morality, uh, maybe at least that way, our youth and our children, they might, they, might, they might still hang on. But this passage reminds them and us, hang on, think about all, how all this started. Jesus pointed 12 nobodies, or 11 nobodies, and one betrayer, to lead this Jesus, Jesus movement in an environment of similar, similar, similar cultural hostility, of a similar power imbalance. And he did it saying, just be with me and learn from me, preach what I tell you to preach, and go out with my authority to fight evil. And yet, here are God's people in Rome, and all over the known world in the Mediterranean when this was written, growing in number and boldness, even as different regimes try to stamp them out. The growth of Jesus' people displays Jesus' greatness, that he is the Son of God. And that gives us confidence to continue. We know that we are on the winning side, that nothing can stop Jesus growing his kingdom, that it is normal to feel out of step with our culture and its leadership, that it's normal to feel that our very existence is threatened. It's normal to feel when we gather as a church that it feels fragile and that the simple spiritual disciplines of being with Jesus and preaching his gospel and resisting evil, it feels inadequate. That's normal. But that is all Jesus' growth plan. And it works. It works. You've got 12 here. Do you know how many Christians there are in the, day, in the world today? Apparently, and I have no idea how you measure this, there are 2.38 billion 12 to 2.38 billion. If you counted every Christian that's alive today at the rate of one a second, it would take you 75 years, because it's 31% of the globe. And that's just those who are alive today. How many are already in glory with the Lord? Four billion, six billion, I don't know. 
without sword, without strength, without moral perfection. My word, our church has been a failure, hasn't it, in many ways. Without perfect leadership. Some of us have seen leadership fail recently, haven't they? God's people have grown. Why? Verse 11. You are the Son of God. That's why. Without the latest business management techniques, without the great worship leader, without the perfect leadership that's all charismatic and get the big crowds in because they're a great speaker, why does it grow? Because Jesus is the Son of God and he is amazing. Despite the efforts of many very powerful regimes uh, attempting, none have stopped Jesus' people growing in number. In fact, their efforts to destroy most often increase their number, like Judas. Little did he know that he was actually getting the whole Jesus movement going. Where are the Pharisees and the Herodians now? Where is Rome now? Where are Rome's gods now? Where is its culture and its military might and its 56 million citizens back then? Where is communist Russia or the Cambodian junta or any oppressive regime, the Chinese government? How effective have they been at stopping God's church growing? 12 to 2.38 billion. Our culture will do what it wants to stop Jesus growing his people. And it feels like they might succeed. And it feels like we aren't enough. Well, we aren't. It feels like simply being with Jesus and going out to preach the gospel and resisting the devil's work in our hearts and out there, it feels like that's not enough. It feels like we want God's people to grow. We should change something. But it has always felt like that. And the reality is that our culture and its, hostile, uh, le- and its leaders are hostile to Jesus. But their efforts to stop his kingdom growing are like a raindrop trying to stop a steam engine. It's like trying to stop the rain falling out of the sky. Because they're not against us. They're against the plans of the Son of God. And this, the, the numbers are his, are his, you know, that's what proclaims his greatness, doesn't it? If you've got a doctor performing surgery on you, you know that's coming up. Surely you've just had that. You know, how many has he done and with what success? That's what you want to know, isn't it? Then maybe you want to chat to some of those patients or read some testimonials of a, of a few extra ex-patients before you trust that person with everything, right? You know, how many patients would it take? 12 or 2.38 billion? From the greatest sickness in the world that is sin. That's someone to trust your life. If Jesus had a TripAdvisor account, he wouldn't just get five stars from 12 people posted 2,000 years ago. He gets 3.2 billion five-star reviews left yesterday. That's someone to trust, isn't it? And so the question is, is do you and I think that Jesus is great enough to reach our culture and to call his people even out of a leadership which is hostile? Do you think Jesus is great enough to do that? Because I think the answer is yes. And that leaves us with an opportunity. Here's the opportunity to be part of the Son of God powerfully winning his people out of a hostile culture and leadership. Be with him. That's what he says here, isn't it? That they might be with him in verse 14. You and I, let's be with him. That means, like the disciples, that they're learning from him. They're learning from his words 
about him. We do that when we pick up the Bible. We look, who is this son of God? If you haven't done that yet, be with him. Get in the Bible, find out who he is. How has he won so many people out of so many different but equally hostile cultures despite their total moral failings? Be with him. Next opportunity is be sent out, just like the disciples here. Be sent out. Go and make disciples. Stick your neck out and keep sticking your neck out. At schools, at work, at home, in the pub, around the supper table at home. Keep sticking your neck out because it's not on you, it's on Jesus to call his people out. And he is mighty to do that. And as we stick our neck out, what are we doing? We're preaching Jesus is Lord. We're preaching chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe. Be as clear as Jesus is about sin, judgment, the need for repentance and the rescue by the blood of Christ and the resurrection life that we've got to follow. Be as clear as he is by using his authority and by using his words when you can, not yours. And then use Jesus' authority to fight a spiritual struggle against evil in here and out there. That means we repent of sin and our lukewarm hearts towards Jesus. Our timidity, our lack of faith in his being the son of God and fighting the battles for us. We fight the spiritual battle against forces that have slipped in among us who would deny the glorious truth of the gospel. That's what we've got coming up as a church family. Whether they wear purple, or they run a wonderful charity, or they've got a church with thousands of people in it. We've got to be clear. But also part of that spiritual battle is calling people out of bondage of sin and the devil to the freedom in Christ. Isn't that what it is? That's what we know. To be called out of the bondage of sin and the devil to freedom in Christ. Praying so much for them as you do so. That's what Jesus' vision was for calling his people out. Trust in me. Get out there. Preach and fight the forces of evil in my authority. Here's my vision for you. It would be great if as a church family, as a church family, as a people, we were bolder than Stephen Croft. We were bolder than the Bishop of Oxford, who is worried that God's people won't be called out of our culture that we need to change what the Bible and the church have spoken for 2,000 years. This is what he says. I fear the consequences for the future mission and life of the church, for our relationship with the nation, and for the future course of the Christian faith in this country. It will be severe. He's afraid the Son of God won't grow his church because the culture is set against us. That is the opposite view of a friend of mine who spent the last 15 years learning from Jesus in his own words, being called out to the Middle East, and is preaching repent and believe in Jesus as Lord in a culture and under a leadership that is so hostile that if you do repent and follow Jesus, you are at best abandoned by your family, and at worst, that nation will sentence you to death. That is someone who knows that it's the Son of God who causes people out. That is an impossible hill to climb, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But not for Jesus. 
How does he keep going almost on his own in the Middle East, calling out the people of God in a culture and leadership so hostile? How does he do that? It's because his confidence isn't in himself or his ability or to be liked by that culture and leadership. His confidence is in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and who has grown his people from 12 to 3.2 billion and is continuing to grow his people today. Amen. Amen. Lord God, we praise you that you are a God who is mighty to save and that there is nothing or no one or no ideology that can ever stop you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to resist the temptation to rely on ourselves, to think little of you. But Lord, instead, in the way that we follow you, in the way that we hold out your words of life, that we would do it the most when it seems the hardest or it seems most unpalatable to our culture. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be with you so that we would have confidence that you are God and that you would send us out in the power of your spirit to preach and have that authority over evil. We bless you and we praise you, Lord. You are thrilling and amazing. Amen.